Go ahead and grab your Bibles. You're going to be opening them up to the book of Matthew 26, and, and uh, we'll put that on the screen in a second. You ever wonder if Jesus struggled to do the right thing? Sounds like a bad question to ask, doesn't it? You sort of sit there and think, did he ever wake up and thought, eh, not today? Do you ever think he walked up to somebody who was covered in sin and he's like, you deserve it? Or walked up to somebody who was, was sick or needed some kind of healing and he's like, ah, do I have to listen to their sob story again and fix them? Do you ever think he had those moments? Probably not, but there's probably those moments when he emotionally felt similar things that we did. But I was sort of thinking about this because as we're going into this series Embraced by Jesus, I need to hear that. I need to hear that. I wonder if he had those days like me because there's days when I don't feel loved or I don't feel like loving anybody else. But I'm reminded that I am embraced by God. I am embraced by God through Jesus. And throughout history, no matter what happened to the men and women of God, whether they were in prison, whether they were persecuted, whether they were uh, isolated or whatever it may be, regardless of what happened, nothing could separate them from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that is a truth that we're just going to keep driving home and driving home over the next few weeks and, and until we get to Easter. And once we get to Easter, if you haven't learned it yet, uh, well, I don't know what to say. But in Matthew 26, we continue the story of the events that led up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, here in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, it, it's the night when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. It was his final moments with them, his final teachings, his final prayers. He prayed for us. Remember last week we talked about how he prayed for us. He prayed that we would be one. He prayed for unity for us. And after all that, he prays, off they go to the olive grove, known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now in John chapter 18, verse 1, let me read that verse to you. It says this, after saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and he entered a grove of olive trees. That's it. That's all we know about the story of the Garden of Gethsemane from the book of John. But if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see in those three passages that there's more to this. In Mark chapter 26, that's going to be the mainstay of this morning's scripture where we're going to be. But the fact that it's in these other three Gospels tells us that we should be alert to something here. One theologian said, all three Gospels cover this moment in detail. Approach cautiously. Well, of course, whenever we open up God's Word, we approach it cautiously. We are diligent. We are cautious in trying to grasp the meaning of Scripture and not twisting it or turning it to fit our needs. But what is God saying in that Scripture? And when you have multiple authors sharing in this one story, we have to understand that they are going to have a slight difference to them. Not so much a fact, but how they saw it. And what I mean by this is for, it's really simple. Let's say that um, we're all in this... this area watching, uh, I don't know, a sporting event or at a, somewhere wherever it might be, and then an altercation breaks out, a fight breaks out. And a bunch of us witness what happened leading up to it and the fight, and then how they cool down afterwards. And the police show up, and they're like, all right, we need a report of what happened here. You, 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 who all saw us? Put 10 of, you, put 10 of us in 10 separate rooms. Give us a piece of paper and a pencil. Write down what you saw. Now, we'll take those 10 
eyewitness reports, and they're not going to look exactly the same. There'll be certain details that will match up, and there'll be some will be seeing it differently. That's what happens with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when you look at the gospel stories. Luke was a physician, so when he looks at it, he might be going to have a little bit of a medical tint to it as he looks at the scripture. So as we look at this right here, understand that we're going to focus in on Matthew, but there's Mark and Luke that also share in this story. So in Matthew chapter 26, let's start in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Verse 39, he went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Verse 40, then he returned to the disciples and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Verse 42, then Jesus left them a second time and he prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to his disciples and said, Go ahead, sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. When you read this scripture, and as I've read through it, and I've studied it, and I said, okay, God, what's jumping out here? What, what do I need to know? And again, just as God may speak differently to you than he does to me, I want to share with you what I gained from this when I was studying the scripture. There's four things that really popped out to me. And here's the four things. First of all, Jesus is divine and human. The agony was intense. Jesus trusted God's plan. And finally, be alert. Those, those are the four things that really stood out to me. And we'll, we'll start with that first one, that Jesus is divine and human. We are accustomed to saying maybe when you talk about lineage or somebody just says, I'm going to go back and see my roots, where I came from. And like, you know, I've got 10% Irish in my family. I've got 50% German. I'm 20% Hispanic. I'm 17% uh, African-American. You know, they, everybody throws out these percentages, what they are. Can I listen very carefully? Jesus was 100% human, 100% divine. Period. It's hard to understand, isn't it? Because we're like, well, we're 10%, 10%. It's like Jesus was 100%. Fully human, fully divine, hard to understand, but that's who he was. And when we read about Jesus going through the scriptures, he was with his disciples and they faced, for instance, these, mo these moments of fear or other emotions. Let's pick on fear. When the demonized man came charging at him in the dark, screaming, do you think his disciples felt fear? And, and when he was walking on, when he was at, actually walked on water, but during that storm, when he was at sea, they were scared. There was a lot of fear going on. The religious leaders, when they picked up the stones in their hands to throw them, you think there was fear there? Absolutely. So in all those moments when Jesus was with his disciples and he said, fear not. He taught them to not fear. He told them to not fear. 
Because he knew the emotion that was going on. And even with Jesus, there could have been some of that same emotion. He faced various things, frustration, discouragement, sorrow. And, and, and whenever these emotions that he and his disciples faced, he showed them how to have peace, how to handle those emotions. Look at verse 37. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he, look what he says. He became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul's crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What was on the horizon? What, what was coming down the road that caused Jesus to feel all this distress and anguish? His soul is crushed with grief. What did he see coming? The scourging, the beatings, the cross, the tomb. He was troubled. He was depressed. He knew of the coming suffering. In the book of Luke, now again, here's where we look to, let's go to one of the other gospel accounts. We go to the book of Luke, and we look in chapter 22, verse 44, and it says this, He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. When you look at this word agony in the Greek, it comes from a word that meant intense competition, like wrestling. It was often used to depict athletic competitions, and it basically tells us Jesus was in this struggle. He was in this fight. As he's praying, he's got like a wrestling match going on within him. That distress, that sorrow, that anguish, the spiritual pressure that's being put upon Jesus right now says it was overwhelming. My soul is crushed. The agony. Now, his emotional state was so intense, it says that he sweat drops of blood. It's like, what? Now, there is a medical condition called hematidrosis, which I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly. But I had to look this up and understand it a little bit more because it's talked about all the time in this biblical uh, truth. And it says the mind is basically going under such great mental stress. There's so much going on with emotional pressure that the body says there's something going on. And from what I read, this sort of signals the body to react as a result of what's going on emotionally and mentally. What happens then is there's a first and second layer of skin that's separated and thickly clotted blood comes in there. And then what happens is over, uh, once that blood seeps in, then it sort of comes through the pores and drips out like you're sweating blood. That's what that condition is called. And it happens when you are mentally and emotionally so stressed and your body sends these signals says, do something. This is what was going on when Jesus is praying. That was more intense than 40 days fasting in the wilderness when he was toe-to-toe, face-to-face with Satan. I mean, I, I, I wasn't there. So I can't say throughout the life that Jesus was on this earth if this was the most, uh, the most uh, that he ever endured as far as a spiritual combat. But I would say it was up there. Pretty high-ranking moment in the life of Jesus when there was a lot going on. And he, just a side note, by the way, He's going through all this. Where's his disciples? Where are the ones who followed him? Where are the ones who are supposed to be next to him? Off sleeping. They fell asleep. You know what's amazing is that Jesus still embraced them. When in his most painful moments, the ones he loved and taught, they're sleeping. And Jesus still embraced them. Here's the second thing I learned about the scriptures. The agony was intense. 
and that the cup of God must be taken. So you sit there and think, okay, so what brought on this agony? Why was he so distressed? Why was he crushed with grief? We find it in his prayer. Look at verse 39. He went on a little farther, bowed with his face to the ground, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Remember, God and Jesus are one. They're they're one. But the cross meant separation, alienation from God. Take away the sins of the world. To appease the judgment of God against the world, Jesus would have to take that penalty upon himself and he would have to be separated from God. That cup, whenever you read in Scripture and you have to look this up, you start looking through and say, what is, what is cup used and how is cup described throughout Scripture? When you go in the Old Testament, it all has to do with the judgment of God. Various Scriptures from Isaiah and Jeremiah say this, this is what the sovereign Lord your God, Defender, says, See, I've taken away the terrible cup from your hands. You will drink no more of my fury. In Jeremiah, we read, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled to the brim with my anger. Make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. See, the cup of God was always wrath and judgment. It's coming in. You're going to have to drink this. And basically what Jesus said, he goes, take this cup from me. Why? Because Jesus was going to drink the cup of suffering that was intended for us. And he was the one that was going to drink it. Best way to describe this, I I used this illustration a few years back. Hopefully it, it helps with understanding more of this whole picture. Our God is a holy God. He is pure. There's nothing impure about him. And he existed before everything, right? And then he created the heavens and the earth, and he created Adam and Eve. And when he created man, he created man in his likeness. The impurity, the pureness of God could be seen in in first creation, right? But then sin entered the world and really destroyed the purity of, of our God and what God created us to be. I was have up here a bunch of different ingredients. And we're going to just call these 10 different ingredients 10 different sins. If you want to use the Ten Commandments, you can. Uh, Not to have any other God before me, right? Uh, Do we go out and do we worship other things? Do we make other things a priority before God? If we do, we're putting that in our life. It affects us. Maybe I'm not supposed to lie. Well, you know, growing up, I was always told you're not supposed to lie, right? What about a little white lie? I mean, just a little white lie. It's just not a big deal, right? Oh, see, sometimes we have just these little white lies, and sometimes another little white. Sometimes we just lie. Okay, it's sort of the way it happens. And I also have siblings, four brothers, one sister, the youngest of them. So I'm going to claim that I'm the one that always got picked on, but I was also bigger than the rest of my family, and so there's probably a time when I probably hurt my brother. I, you know, I know it says, "Thou shalt not murder," right? But what did Jesus talk about? If there's that anger towards somebody in my heart, you know, I might as well call it murder. So have I hurt somebody? Have I hurt somebody? You know, I know I've probably have swung or done something I shouldn't have done. And uh, Beware, comatose heat level. This is hot sauce, okay? Um, as I get older, I have kids. Parents, I'm sure you've never gotten angry with your kids, have you? You all cool, calm. 
So for all you cool, calm parents, come talk to me sometimes. Say, Rex, you should have done this better because there's times I got upset with my kids. I got hot. Probably said some things to my children that I should have not said. But I'm not all that bad. I'm sort of sweet too. I've done nice things for people. So I want to put that in there because I want to I mention I'm pretty sweet to people. But then, um, oh, there's, there's other choices I've made in my life that I just... You know, whether you have an impure thought about things, it's not good. My life isn't looking so pure anymore, is it? See, here's what happens. We start sinning. We start adding these impurities into our life. This is what our life looks like. And we say, you know what? I need to clean this up. And I know what my mom did. You know, if you say a bad word or you say something wrong, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. Or we used to use vinegar mm-hmm. with our kids. Put some vinegar in your mouth. No, well, that should clean up your mouth, shouldn't it? Still looking a little messy. So let's go for a better, something else that can maybe clean it up. I saw this back in the uh, closet. Odorless mineral spirits cleans up interior jobs. There's an interior thing going on in here that needs some cleaning, okay? Uh, Thins oil-based paint stains varnish. I'm sure that will clean some stuff out. Oh, yeah. There we go. This didn't work. I tried to clean it up, but it still looks pretty bad. So basically, when I, when I look at all this, um, I've got to ask myself now, should I take a drink? <laughs> so you just put poison in there. It would be ridiculous and stupid for you to drink something so gross, so filled with toxins, right? But there's no way I want to touch that. There's, there's no way I would, I can even, I can smell, that said odorless, but that, something really stinks there right now. But that's, that's like the sin of my life. It stinks. It's gross. It's impure. You know how, but here's the thing. How do I get rid of this? Because what I want is a righteous life. I want to be right before my God. I want to have a pure heart. There's no way for me to have a pure heart when my heart looks like this right now. Scripture says, take a look at verse 39. It says this, he went on a little further and he bowed down and faced the ground. saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Jesus knew what he was about to drink. Jesus knew the cup that he was going to take. See, that cup that he was going to be, the cup of suffering that he was going to put upon himself, was my cup, your cup, all thrown into one big cup. You know, the only way to get rid of this is to empty it. And I can't dump it out. Somebody's got to drink it. And Jesus says, I will drink the toxins. I will drink the garbage. Jesus, who is pure, who has never sinned, who he says, I will drink your cup. And he drinks it gone, licks it clean. And when we confess our sins to this holy God that we worship, he gives us a new life. And he gives us a purity that we can't do on our own. The next time, church, you take communion, Just remember this. I'll try to remind you. Next time we take that cup, you remember this. He drank the first cup. 
our cup. And he replaced it with the new covenant, his blood, to give us new life. That's what he did for us. And when I, when I sit there and I look and say, why was Jesus suffering? Jesus was suffering. Jesus was deeply distressed. Jesus was sweating drops of blood because this was on the agenda for him. He knew it. And three times he said, God, I really don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. Which led me to the next thing about this passage. Jesus trusted God's plan. He drank it because he knew that God's plan was bigger than this. It says in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, 8, it says this, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who would rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. He obeyed. There's no other plan. There's no other way. You ask any other religion, they got all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways. They have all kinds of saviors they like to think will save them, but none of them work. This world tells you, you believe whatever you want to believe that's going to save you, go for it. Just whatever makes you feel good. And if there's this Christianity thing sort of cramps your style because you got to act a certain way, find something else to worship. That will save you because all roads lead to heaven. That's garbage. That's not true. The Holy Bible tells us there's one God, the Father, by whom all things were created for whom we live. And there's only one Lord Jesus Christ and through whom he created all things. Acts 4.12, Peter says this. He goes, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. See, all the things that people do to try to clean up their life, do good, uh, be successful in life, whatever it might be, it doesn't work. We all eventually are going to die and we can't save ourselves. We can't. And I just want to make, I want to make this statement clear too about what I said earlier is... Um, when it comes to death, can I just remind you, God doesn't take anyone. I've looked through scripture and I don't see God taking away. Death takes people. Death is the enemy. Sin is the enemy. God's our rescuer. God saves us from death. And I often hear people say, well, well Jesus took so-and-so or God took so-and-so. And I understand what they're saying, but I just want to make sure you understand death is the enemy, not God. Because I know people who won't come back to church because they think God took somebody special from them. God never robs us of life. He gives life. And I want to make sure we understand it because if we think we can control what we can do, we're wrong. Only God can save us through his son, Jesus Christ. He is holy. We're sinners. We can't save ourselves. It's completely and utterly impossible. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. And if you haven't turned your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never confessed with your mouth to God, asking him to forgive you of your sins, I would encourage you to do that today. Place your trust in the one God who can save you. You can't save yourself. He will save you. But you've got to go to him. And I would encourage you today, if you've not done that, to do that. And this is a tough time. And Jesus says, but not my will. Yours be done. In obedience, 
he would drink the cup. Last point I found in this scripture was this. Be alert. Keep watch. It seems so simple, right? Multiple times Jesus said, be alert, keep watch. What does that mean? It means be alert. Keep watch. Stay active. Give your attention to something. Be cautious. As Christians, it's very easy for us to become lazy in our faith. It's very easy for us to be distracted in our faith. We can get caught up in so many other things going on around the world. We don't do the one thing we should be doing, and that is praying. We can get so lazy sometimes, and it's like, in, in moments when I'm stressed out or tired, that's probably when I should pray the most. In, in moments like I come back after a retreat or it's a great, been a great Sunday, and Sunday night when it's like, God is so good. You know, that's probably the best time to pray so that my pride doesn't creep up. Keep alert. Be alert. Keep watch. Four things real quick about prayer. First of all, we learned in this passage how to pray. He did not pray alone in the garden. There's times when Jesus did things alone. There's times when Jesus invited his disciples to walk with him. And in this passage, what do we see? Jesus is like, hey, Peter, James, and John, first of all, all of you, let's go. Then Peter, James, and John, three of you, I want you to come closer to me. And uh, you, do you ever wonder how Thomas and all the others felt? Oh, he's got his, he's got his click. There they go, right? I don't think they complained. We do. I'll come so-and-so. I don't get to hang out with so-and-so. Okay, how come Jesus didn't pick me? You know what? He picked you. You've already been picked. Quit trying to be to a higher picking ground, okay? It just so happens that Jesus is like, Peter, James, and John, I want you three to come even a little bit closer. He's asked all of us to come closer to him. He understands when you pray, invite others in in your prayer life. Who else can pray for you? Who can you pray for? Don't think you can do this on your own. He also prayed to Abba Father. He prayed to his heavenly Father. He's like a child who wants his father's attention and wants to crawl on his daddy's lap and say, Dad, i got to tell you something. He goes, Abba, Father. It's a dear moment when he's praying. I remember as a little kid, um, before I could drive, I mean, little kid, even though I grew up on a farm, farm truck, tractors, we get to drive those, right? But it all began with sitting in my dad's lap. I'd sit in my dad's lap. We'd be on the tractor or the big farm truck, and I got to put my hands on the steering wheel, and I could do this, right? And it was like, I felt like big stuff. Although my feet couldn't go all the way down the path, I couldn't touch the brake, I couldn't t- touch the accelerator, but I could do this. I, I couldn't make the sharp turns, but I could do this. And that's the way I am sometimes in my life spiritually. Spiritually, there's times I don't know when to break. There's times I don't know when I need to get going. There's times I can't make the sharp turn, and I got to go to my Abba Father and say, Heavenly Father, thank you for giving me the steering wheel, but I need help driving. And in this moment, it's like Jesus climbed into the lap of his Abba Father and said, I can't make the turn here. I need you to help me make it. And he prays to Abba Father. He prays according to God's will. He puts God first. There's that temptation in our life. I want things to go my way. But Jesus even taught in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, 9 and 10, he said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like, God, your will, not mine. If I had my way, there's a lot of things I'd like done, and God knows it's not the right way. Here's the fourth thing. Be persistent in prayer. We're not trying to change God's mind. Understand that? When he goes to pray, he goes to pray. He goes to pray that third time. He was not trying to change God's mind like, God, I really don't want this. Was he expecting after he went to third time, God to say, okay, you don't have to. Oh, thanks. He was getting his heart lined up with God's. When we pray, we're getting our hearts lined up with God. It's not, hey, God, can you line up your heart with mine? Prayer is us lining up our hearts with God. 
understanding where we need to go. And sometimes it is hard to do what God wants us to do. But that moment of like, God, I'm going to keep coming to you in prayer. And eventually I know you're probably going to put my heart right where it needs to be. Jesus knew, by the way, Jesus knew what was coming, right? The soldiers that came to arrest him then, Peter pulls out a sword. What does Jesus say? Put the sword away, Peter. He said this, don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to come and protect me and he would send them? Listen to what he said. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? See, Jesus knew what was supposed to happen. Jesus knew God's plan. He didn't go into this prayer hoping that God would change that. He even told Peter, Peter, put the sword away. If I wanted to, I could change this. But this is God's plan. I've got my heart lined up with it now. We're good. It's all good. It was God's plan. And Jesus was sticking to it. Worship team, would you come forward, please? When I think about what he did in that garden, the prayer, the cup of suffering, and he did that for me, uh, there, there's things in my life I can go to God and say, God, I've been agonizing over this. I've been stressed out about this. There are things in my, we all have, right? Isn't it good to know that our Heavenly Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit know exactly how you're feeling? They know exactly how you're feeling. There's a song I used to uh, sing growing up in our church, and uh, you've probably heard it. And at some point in time, maybe we'll sing it again. I don't know. The author is uh, Frederick Whitfield. He, he wrote this, but then who actually turned it into song? I don't know if they really know. But the first verse goes like this. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Second verse goes like this. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set us free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. And then the chorus, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. You know, I look at that picture, it's like, I can't wait to embrace him. He's already embracing us. In the garden, he embraced us when we had this in our life. We still have some of it in our life. There will be a day where we will become before God and all will be made new. But until that day, when every day we wake up, we need to remember our Jesus has embraced us even though we look this way. Isn't he a good God? Would you stand, please? He had the choice to obey God's plan or do his own thing, right? I'm out of here. But Jesus said, not my will. And in doing so, he obeyed God, which led to eternal life for you and I. What a good gift that he's given us. What a good God he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing, amazing thing you've done for us. And God, I know that many of us, we, we've gone through moments in our lives. Some of us are going through it right now where we have been agonizing. We've been stressed. We've had all kinds of emotions. And God, it's so good to know that your son, Jesus, understands every single one of those emotions. And, and, and the impurities in our life, 
that we have tried to get rid of and we can't, it's good to know that He has taken that cup of suffering and He has He's drank that cup so that we don't have to. He has rescued us. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to rescue us. And thank you for the, the new life that we can have through your son Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for embracing us just as we are. We love you, God. We sing to you now. In thy name we pray.